and welcome to FolkPod. I'm your host, Cheryl Prashker, and we're going to be talking to my friends, some of the most entertaining musicians and songwriters that I know. So get ready for a deep dive behind the songs and the lives they've lived through music. This week's guest is Jonathan Edwards, best known for his 1971 hits Sunshine and Shanty, both off his first album. Jonathan has not stopped performing since. 50 years, 19 albums, plus many collaborations, and still performing many shows a year to sold-out crowds. And I can tell you, no one puts on a better show. I had the best seat in the house for a few years, as I had the amazing privilege of touring with J.E. Welcome, Jonathan Edwards. Well, thank you, Cheryl. It's great to be back with you. I know. It's been a while, actually. You know, I was thinking about when we were performing together, and that was like 15 years ago. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. I really appreciate you being here and chatting with me, because it's been a while since we've chatted, and we get to catch up, and everybody gets to hear what we have to say. (laughs) Great. How have you been? Just fine, all things considered. Yeah, it's a crazy time. But, you know, I realize I have a lot of questions to ask that I've never asked you before. So this is a chance for me to learn some stuff along with the listeners. All right. So my first question to you is, I have no idea where you grew up. I have no idea if, like, you had music in school or how did music come into your life? Did you start singing? Did the guitar come first? I had a kind of a musical family growing up. Yeah, my mom was always in choirs and played the piano by ear in our living room and played a lot of religious music. And my dad brought home cool records all the time, like some country guys and some popular gospel type stuff of the era in which I grew up. And we had a great stereo system in the living room beside the piano. And my mom was always, you know, encouraging me, I think, to get in the choirs at church and all that kind of participation in live music. And I got bitten by the bug from an early age. Ah, so singing was sort of the thing that got you going. Yeah. So did you take up any instruments in the school band or anything like that? Or was it just choir? Well, I took piano lessons from the lady that lived next door for like maybe a half a summer. As you do. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) And I was always looking out the window to watch my friends playing football and thought I was getting the raw end of the deal. But it did engender in me a love of songs because for some crazy psychic reason, the lady thought I would resonate best with the songs of Stephen Foster. Oh, wow. Okay. I gravitated towards that and loved that music. And he was a, maybe one of the first songwriters that we had in our, in our nation. Yep. You know, those were really songs. They weren't like pieces of music. They were just songs. And I, I, I loved them. When did you write your first song? Do you remember? Yeah, I went right after my piano lessons and a few behavioral issues. <laughs> I found myself in military school. Okay. And we're talking the 60s, I bet. For my high school years. Yeah. And the kid in, in the room next door happened to have a guitar and I had never seen one up close. Now they're everywhere. Right. You can't swing a cat around the room without hitting a guitar. <laughs> so I picked up this guitar. Hey, can I see what that's about? And he said, sure. I picked up the guitar and I said, well, show me something to play. And he showed me a couple of notes to play. I think it was, uh, tell me what I say, you know. Right, right. Just a lick. And I was hooked. You know, I I joke about it in interviews and stuff these days, but uh, it really felt like the sky parted, the angels sang, and suddenly I knew what something in this planet was about. And that was music and my relationship to it. That's amazing. Before that happened... Was there a sort of a direction you were going in school-wise and maybe career-wise that wasn't music? Or did this just stop everything? Well, the teachers early on in my grade school career figured I could stay fairly quiet if they gave me a pack of colored pencils and some paper. <laughs> ah, so you draw? I didn't know you drew. Oh, yeah. Oh, 
In fact, I've done some of the artwork for most of my recent CDs. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, that's fun. Something I've tried to keep track of all these years. I'm creating, even as we speak, a mosaic that I'm making out of stones that I found on the beach. <laughs> nice. That'll be nice. So I'm never too far from other artistic pursuits. Well, that's cool. I actually considered you to be one of the best harmonica players I've ever encountered. Was that just part of the, the scene back then or how did that come into play? Well, it wasn't in any scene, you know, in my little group of rivermen, we called ourselves in military school. But I soon picked it up when I heard Dylan and Donovan and saw that they were doing both at the same time, harmonica and guitar. And I thought, well, that's a good way to jam with yourself. You don't need any <laughs> bandmates when you have a guitar and a, and a harmonica at the same time. No, you don't. Thanks a lot for reminding me. I appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, so how did your first album come about? Because the first album, which is self-titled, threw out a couple of pretty amazing hits and I actually love the entire album. Thanks, me too. Just the whole thing. One of my favorite albums. And how did that come about? What was the world like for you then? Well, I was always in bands and stuff, of course, as soon as I went through college and found myself in Boston and, you know, wanted to play music in an electric band. And so I, I did that for a, a few years and then fell back in love with my Martin guitar and quit the band and said, I'm going to go and chase this acoustic sound and see what that's like. It's kind of a interesting story. I think I was one of the first guerrilla marketers because what I did was someone gave me a, hmm. a map of the colleges in New England, in Vermont and Connecticut and, and Maine and New Hampshire. And I just jumped in my 52 Pontiac and wow. <laughs> <laughs> borrowed a PA system from somebody and drove till I found the first college on my map and drove into the campus found the student union building, walked in with my guitar and my gear, and found an AC plug in the wall, plugged in, started to play. That's incredible. <laughs> I had no idea. You can't do that today. You just can't do that. No. And I did that for the entire autumn season. I think that was in 68 or 9. I'm not sure which. So that came before the album, right? That time in the schools. Yes, for sure. And darned if I didn't start acquiring and attracting an audience, you know, I would stand there and play until the campus cops came in to go, hey, man, what, what do you think you're doing? And I said, well, I'm authorized to play or by whom? Professor Johnson, you know, <laughs> and the people would go, yeah, Professor Johnson, you know, because <laughs> they were in on the scam. Oh, my God. I just played until they figured out I should really get in my car before I got arrested. Amazing. By the end of that season, whichever one it was, 68 or 9, I can't quite recall, I was opening for other national acts in the gyms and coffee houses and stuff all over New England. Who were some of those acts and did they leave a big impression on you? Yeah, for sure. Tom Rush, most notably. Martin Mull. <laughs> a fellow named Pat Skye was really big at the time. A lot of people that we're drawing big audiences, and I found my way to opening for several of them. I tell a lot of up-and-coming artists that that's the way to go, not necessarily to try to find their own 100-seat gig where they may only have five people show up, but to open up for somebody else. I mean, it's just the way to go. It's still the way to go. Yeah. Because I was gaining a certain uh, amount of attention, I attracted an agent, and the manager that had managed me and my previous band decided he'd let the band go and follow me around. And he was able to get me a recording contract. And we went around a lot of the studios in Boston, me and my friends, recording in whatever 
time slots were available, you know, which was typically two in the morning till seven in the morning. Um, <laughs> sure, right. And we ended up recording pretty extensively, considering we didn't have any idea what we were doing for about a year until we finally got enough of a budget together from Capricorn Records in Georgia to go ahead and start a full-fledged album project, which is what I did. Then sleep could hurry to Fasten up your bootstrap, baby Pull your wool hat down For the sky is shining white, my love To cover all the ground Oh, the sky is shining white, my love To cover all the ground Sing and write me letters From a song into a song Something warm For winter now with dreams to send along Cold time is a-coming And I know you heard the sound For the sky is shining white, my love To cover all the ground For the sky is shining white, my love To cover all the ground Wow. And of course, the song Sunshine. I know you've told the story quite a bit on stage. I love the story. Can you tell our audience about how that song came about. and Well, you know, I was a bit of a revolutionary. I know it's hard to imagine in college <laughs> and was always going to the demonstrations. And I fancied myself a bit of an activist. And I was always leading the assembled folks in protest songs of the time, like the times are changing, which I just, in fact, put a verse on Facebook. Yes, you did on Facebook. I happened to catch that. And I really enjoyed that. Thank you. Me too. It was 1969, 1970, and I was pretty disenchanted with just having lived through a, a near-fatal draft board pre-induction physical and then ended up in the hospital for some time and trying to explain to the nice folks there that I really wasn't of a military quality. I wasn't really ready to jump into the wilds of Vietnam. I was more interested in creating change and creating some awareness from the stage instead of from the jungle. So. Anyway, I sat down on my bed in, in Brighton, Massachusetts, and this song just literally popped out, and I thought it was pretty cool, and we, we were embroiled in recording my first album, and we had recorded a song called, Believe It or Not, Please Find Me, and we got there at two in the morning to start the sessions again. In our delirium, the engineer, bless his heart, had inadvertently erased the song called, Please Find Me. <gasps> And said to me in a certain oh. amount of panic after looking on all six reels of two-inch tapes without being able to find the song, said, John, do you have anything <laughs> else you could put on in that space before the guys get in this afternoon? Do you put something on there? Well, I just wrote this one. And I'll just go out there and see how it sounds. And I walked out there and picked up the guitar and did Sunshine just by myself. Instant hit. You know, and it sounded pretty good. And there was a bass sitting in the corner. So I picked that up and put bass on it. And it was sounding really good. <laughs> and my drummer friend, Rich Edelman, came in the next day. And I said, man, can you overdub drums on a track way before the concept of click tracks or anything? <laughs> and so he played the drums. And the two of us are the only folks on that hit single. Yeah. Is that actually the single you're talking about? I mean, that's the recording? Yeah. The recording yes. of it? Yes. Wow. Yeah, it doesn't happen like that either anymore. Crazy stuff. Amazing. Sunshine, go away today. Don't feel much 
like dancing Some man's gone, he's tried to run my life He don't know what he's asking When he tells me I better get in line I can't hear what he's saying When I grow up, I'm gonna make it mine These ain't dues I've been paying well, How much does it cost? buy it the time is all we've lost i'll try it and he can't even run his own life i'll be damned if you run so that took you on a wild ride for a little while did it not it did yeah for sure were you playing bigger places or were you touring further away from home what was that like oh yeah i mean i was doing 250 shows a year once that hit the airwaves hmm. for about three and a half years I was opening for the Almond Brothers quite a bit, B.B. King, Loggins and Messina a little later on. Just great acts that just were so inspiring. The Dirt Band. Oh, yeah. We were like the house band for a short time at the Troubadour in L.A. No kidding. We rocked the blacktop, that's for sure. A lot of fun. <laughs> sure was. That's a great story. <laughs> How long did it take you to actually record that album? Probably not. Like the hours and hours and hours and hours and that people put into their CDs these days. If we spent, you know, Monday through Friday, I'd be surprised. I can't really remember. It's a treasure, folks. If you don't have it, you should. No doubt about it. So I know you've done a lot of other collaborations. You've worked with a lot of other artists. What are some of the funnest folks you've gotten to play with or make records with? Oh, boy. You know, NRBQ, Al Anderson, all the great musicians that have been on my stage with me and all just incredible folks. I think together we've done like 15, 18 albums, something mm. like that, if you count all the compilations and everything. Right, right. What a great experience to have had and still have. And you have an incredible following. I don't think people realize how loyal your fans are. They are. I love them to pieces and I miss them terribly. Yeah, I bet you do. I get that. Interesting, the Philadelphia Folk Festival had their um, festival online, virtual festival, and as part of the ticket, they were allowing you to go through archives for the last 26 years. And I found our set. Did you? That I got to accompany you on there. We didn't suck. Oh my gosh. Try and help me get through airline security. They want to know what these metal objects are in my backpack, and I got to get each one out and play it for them. I tell you, I feel so much safer now to fly. Please make her feel welcome from Philadelphia. A new friend, a dear friend, Cheryl Prashker.
It actually is a really nice set, and you were in great form, and and the crowd was great, and the stage was great, and it was fun to watch. It was a great festival. Yeah. I loved that festival. The crowds were so awesomely warm and and welcoming and energetic at the same time. It was just terrific. Yeah, well, they do adore you, that was for sure. So the last five months or seven months as we've been home, I mean, obviously you probably had to cancel a lot of shows. Yeah, everything. Everything went 55 shows or something just, you know, evaporated. I did get a chance to perform with you and tour with you a bit, like we said, a bunch of years ago. And I was just gobsmacked by your audience and how loyal they are, amazing they are. They follow you around. They've been with you all these years. Like, your fans are incredible. Uh, Yeah, well, it's a treasure. It really is. And I must have done something right along the way. (laughs) You put on an amazing show. You're funny. You're an incredibly talented guitar player, incredible harmonica player, like I said, fantastic singer. You always have amazing musicians with you, so it's just a great show. That's it. Mic drop. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. But during the last few months, we were talking about canceling shows and stuff. Have you been playing? Have you been writing? How have you been handling it artistically? Making projects out of beach stones. <laughs> No, I've been writing quite a bit, actually. In fact, I heard that a lot of people sleep at night. (laughs) Not musicians. I haven't been anyways. Oh, my God. Me neither. Well, for about mm, nine months. (laughs) Really? Yeah. But I always have a notebook going. I've got boxes of them. And once in a while, I'll go back and look at some stuff that I've written years ago and go, my God, that's got legs. Let's explore that one. And And I'll pick it up and make a song and or make a song out of the stuff I wrote last night. So I've been writing quite a bit and that feels so good. I'm 16 chapters into my memoir. Oh, no kidding. Oh, I didn't know you were writing a memoir. Yeah. Some of these questions will be answered. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you. That's fantastic. Well, that's exciting. Oh, it is amazing. Has it been easy to remember things? It gets less easy every day. But fortunately, I've got these 16 (laughs) chapters in the book, in the can, as they say. Oh, great. I'm learning how to write. I've always written poetry, but I've I've never written what I would call prose before. And so this has been a real education. And I'm loving the process of finding out how to show pictures in words. It's enormously challenging, enormously difficult. But I'm loving it. I think I'm turning out a great product, and I hope to have it out at some point in the next year or so. Oh, fantastic. Well, when you write your songs, what comes first, the lyrics or the music? The best time that it happens and feels the best is when they happen at the same time. Hmm. That's such an exuberant feeling, right. exhilarating feeling to have both of those things happen simultaneously. And, and I struggle to get them on my little voice memo on yeah. the phone. And <laughs> Right. It's the way to go. Yeah. Has there been a song that has touched the audience that actually surprised you, that you weren't expecting it to have touched the audience like it does or did? Yeah, I've, I've got a song called Gracie that uh, is on my most recent album called Tomorrow's Child, a song I wrote about my lovely daughter, Grace, hmm. and our reunion after many years of you know living apart. That's been a real connection with the folks, hmm. for sure. Is it that you see their reaction or have they come up to you and talked to you about the song and given you their personal story and said why it touched them? Well, as you know, I always go out of my way to take my (laughs) exhausted self out to the lobby every night after the show and and meet the folks. Yes, you do. And it means so much to them and it means a lot to me as well to hear 
because we go out there and there's lights and there's sound and you see silhouettes in the audience, you know, mm -hmm. and you lose track that they're actually people with feelings and lives. And I've known a lot of artists that love that part of it, that you do lose track of that. But I, I like to know. And so I listen to the folks mm -hmm. and I try to meet everybody. Yeah. And it's a lovely thing to do. I hope to always be able to do that, even in the age of COVID. Yeah, that's what's been hard about this is not being in touch with the audience because I know how much it means to them. I know the audience is hurting just as much as the musicians are for sure, at this time. For sure. Has there been a story that somebody gave you that in particular that you remember? A lot of stories about how my songs, like Gracie, for instance, have touched people and they come up and say, you know, I've been estranged from my daughter for 25 years and this gives me encouragement to try and make that phone call again and oh. persevere with trying to put us back together. Things like that happen every night. Gracie, tell your story. No need to say you're sorry. Sing your heart and spirit, soul and mind. And pathway shall be Your daughters sing? Yes. Yep. Grace is a recording artist. She and her husband, Jérôme Deget. Mm-hmm. He's French. Is he from Paris or from Quebec? From Paris, where they lived for many years. And in fact, okay. they got a gold record in France. <gasps> no kidding. Mm -hmm. Before they decided to move back to the States. And they're living in Nashville now and loving life. That's fantastic. Yeah. Good. Do they have kids? Yeah. Grace and Jerome have a, a young boy who's almost two. Oh, yeah. Grandpa J.E. I know. Mazel tov. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> oh, I saw something recently. This thing called the Ghost Light series that you did something with Noel Paul Stuckey and Tom Rush. So can you tell me about that? Yeah. The Bach Center in, in Boston is running this series called the Ghost Light series. And you know what a ghost light is. Right. I do, actually. Yeah, for those of you out there who don't know, it, it's a light that is always burning in a theater when it's dark. When the show is over and the folks have gone home, everyone's gone home except for the ghost light <laughs> that burns brightly. Just to kind of illuminate the whole stage area, make it possible for people to not bump into stuff if they happen to come into the building when it's dark. Right. <laughs> they mounted a series called the Ghost Light Series, and they bring folks in and have them sit around that light with a microphone and play and tell stories and reminisce. Oh, no kidding. So when did you actually record this? About three weeks ago. 
Wow. And I don't have an air date for that yet. And will this be something that is available to people online, on Facebook, or, or on their website kind of thing? Is that how that's going to work, you think? I think it's online and on their website for sure. That's a great idea, just to have you guys sit down until you tell stories yeah. about songs and just yeah. trade songs. Yeah. I can't wait to see that. That's cool. Oh, we're old friends, and it's such an honor for me to be in that, <laughs> that trio, for sure. Given such a you know incredible lengthy career. Any crazy road stories? If you've ever been on tour in a bus, ladies and gentlemen, you know that it's all about the driver. And a bad driver can make your life hell in the first hour. Uh Uh-oh. And a great driver can make your life heaven for a six-month swing. Wow. Anyway, we had a pretty lousy driver once when we were in Louisiana. It was a horrendous touring schedule. One-nighters, one after another, bang, 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 300 miles in between each date. It was rough, and the driver was not great. And he managed, in his genius, to bury the back end of the bus (gasps) in a mud puddle in Louisiana that hadn't seen rain for three months. I can't even imagine. We got a backgammon tournament going on in that bus for months. That would be fun. It was fun. Lots of songs, lots of music. Folk music. Folk music. What do you consider folk music to be? I was wondering about that myself today. You know, I'm <laughs> I'm thinking, wow, this is a folk show. What is folk music? It started out being that, and it's kind of grown into stories about life in the music business and how it's impacted your life as well as your fans' lives. And folks playing music at the end of the day. That's us. Your style of guitar playing, which is why I enjoyed accompanying you so much, is you're so rhythmic, but you're so steady and so tight that I was able to sort of weave around what you did. Even your songs are very rhythmic. Is that all self-taught, by the way, your guitar playing? Yeah, of course. This is way before Berkeley School of Music. (laughs) Yeah, okay. (laughs) That's one thing I adore about playing with you, is your guitar playing and your sense of timing. I totally love your sense of groove and time as well. And Thank you. It comes from soul, girlfriend. That cannot be taught, I don't think, by anyone to anyone. Fair enough. Well, where can people find you on the interweb? The interweb, my website is jonathanedwards.net. And we've talked about some of the things you have coming up, possibly a new album, a new memoir, yep. a concert online with Tom Rush and Noel Paul Stuckey. Mm-hmm. Have you been doing little concerts on Facebook? You really haven't been doing that. No, I haven't. I'm just concentrating on, on writing and recording songs and hope to have a eight or nine song thing out in the early summer, I hope. That's fantastic. Great. Thank you so much for being part of this. It's just been a joy to get to chat with you. I definitely miss playing your music. There's no doubt about it. I hope we get to do that again someday. I miss playing music with you, Gerald, so much. And we'll have to do it again. It's a date. Once you get your visa situation straightened (laughs) out. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much for being part of FolkPod. This has been just the best time. Thank you for spending time with us. And I can't wait to see you. Thank you for the work you're doing. Thank you for getting us out there. Otherwise, I'd just be here with my dog, (laughs) you know. Thank you. See you soon, I hope. Thanks, Cheryl. So one night, 
I'm three songs into the show and this couple comes in all hurried and excited and comes down right down in front, you know, and scoots over everybody and sits down in the first row in the middle. Of course. And I couldn't help myself but say, oh, hey, thanks so much for joining me tonight. You know, is there anything I can get you? Like a goddamn watch? <laughs> you didn't. I did. I couldn't help it. Just had to do it. Folkpod is a production of Long Story Short with me, Cheryl Prashker, your host, producer, and lead schmoozer. And Shauna Boniface, creator, producer, and editor. Like and subscribe to FolkPod wherever you get your podcasts. And please give us five stars on iTunes. It really helps raise our profile for more listeners. Catch us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at The FolkPod. Thanks for listening and hope to see you next time. And put a good buzz on.